brief word of prayer as we get ready to uh, hear from God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say this morning from your word. Give us hearts that are uh, a tilled soft soil to receive what you say and that what you say would bear fruit in our lives as a result. Minimize me and uh, we pray that the spotlight would be on you and your son Jesus Christ as your spirit ministers to our hearts, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Don't have to look far into the news, especially lately, to see just how dark of a world we live in. Uh, you ask yourself, how does man become that bad? Yeah. How, how does evil um, become that dark? Well, the Bible's pretty clear that where uh, there is darkness, it's because there's something missing. There's a kind of light that's missing. That's why there's darkness. Darkness is the absence of, absence of something more than the presence of something, right? And biblically, the darkness is the absence of God's light. The Bible starts that way, doesn't it? Everything's dark, and then God speaks and says there's light. And then John says that speaking of light into the darkness was actually the word of God himself. Um, he doesn't just say that was Jesus, but he calls Jesus the word. It's God revealing something to undo darkness. So it really shouldn't be any surprise in parts of the world where God's word is rejected that we see war, killings, rape, bombings. I mean, it's still shocking, but it shouldn't be theologically shocking we understand where God's word is rejected darkness persists but what the Bible tends to show especially in the passage we're going to see today is places where God's word should be there and isn't and then darkness persists how many of us have heard of or come from church backgrounds where the machinery was all there the teaching was excellent, the money was, the, the coffers were full, <laughs> people pledged their 401ks, I don't know, there's, the commitment is there by the people, and then the pastor fails, or the ministry fails, because even though they should have the word of God, there's not a yielding to the word of God, and the place implodes, and that should be more mind-shattering than what's happening in Israel or Gaza. Because that, you expect that. They're not clinging to the word of God over there. But when you see it happen in a church or a ministry, that should be shocking because you should, you should be like, there was light, but they're still in darkness. How is that possible? And so here we have Israel, 1 Samuel. Turn with me there. We're moving through 1 Samuel piece at a time. We're in chapter 3 today. You've got God's people with a temple. The Ark of the Covenant is still there. No need to send Indy Jones after it. They've got it. The tent of meeting is there. The sacrificial system is there. Priests are there. 
and they're shrouded in darkness. It comes on the heels of the book of Judges. Remember, Judges was violent and horrific and just the sheer stupidity of people that should know better, um, that should be ministering to the folks instead of leading them into bloodbaths. And Judges tells us, hey, they didn't have a leader. They didn't have a king. And so now we come into 1 Samuel, and we're like, okay, what's going on now? You've got priests, and you've got a temple, and you've got the ark. But it's utter darkness. Well, you saw from last time, when Ben very ably walked you through chapter 2, and Eli, the priest, should be in charge. He is in charge, but he's not doing anything. And then his sons are terrible, right? They're just terrible. They're taking advantage of people. And then it's kind of around the middle of chapter 2, there, when, when some of the ladies would come to the tent of meeting. Remember the tent of meeting in Exodus? It's God's earth-shattering presence, and they're like, Moses, you go in there. These guys are sleeping with the women at the entrance. That's how dark. Well, God's going to do something. But look at just the opening of chapter 3. The opening of chapter 3, the first three verses. Now the boy, Samuel... Remember Hannah's miraculously born child is dedicated to the temple, lives there. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So you got two characters, Samuel and Eli. And what I want you to see as we read through is the contrast. Eli bad, Samuel good. Okay, that's to break it down real simple. All right. And what you're going to see in this is which one you're supposed to be. It's not that hard. Good example, bad example, which one do you think you're supposed to be, right? And we're going to get there, and it's going to take some time to get there, but let's, let's move through. The boy Samuel was ministering, in the Lord, ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now, you have to understand, they had some Old Testament, right? And they had the Torah, but they didn't have the New Testament epistles. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have... Uh, you know, revelation that, that ties a lot of Old Testament stuff together. They didn't have those things, and so they relied on prophets to speak to them. That the Lord spoke to me, and here's what he said, and they weren't around. They should have been around, but they weren't. So this was, these days were dark days. Coming out of chapter 2, you're like, wow, that's pretty dark, and the text is telling you why it was dark. There were no visions. No word from the Lord. And it's circular, right? So darkness blocks God speaking, but God not speaking perpetuates the darkness. And and as you read through the book of Judges, the prequel to this book, you see that cycle. It just keeps getting worse and worse. So the word of the Lord was rare. Some people tell you, man, I wish it was like the old days when God just spoke all the time. It wasn't all the time. And especially in this time, it was rare for anyone to receive a vision from the Lord. Verse 2, at that time, Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now here's a tip when you're reading scripture, especially narrative. By narrative, we mean like it's story time in the Bible, right? It's not just historical facts. It's laying out a story, and you're trying to track with what the author wants you to take from the story. Now, They didn't have unending ability to just make huge documents. They're choosing their words very carefully 
So here's the tip. When you see something that's like, that seems like an irrelevant piece of information, don't assume it's an irrelevant piece of information. Ask yourself, why'd they sneak that in there? Give you an example. You've got Eli and Samuel at the Texas contrasting, right? And then verse 2, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. I don't care about his eyesight, do you? Do you care whether he had 20-20 vision or whether he needed thick glasses but they didn't invent glasses yet, poor guy? Seems irrelevant, right? And then it says he was lying down in his own place and then Samuel was lying down in the temple. I don't care where they sleep. Do you care where they sleep? I mean, Eli has a house. Why can't he sleep in there? Hannah dedicated Samuel to the temple. Obviously, he's going to sleep in there. He's not sleeping at mom's house. What's the big deal? Then it tells us, verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. How does that move the story forward? We weren't talking about lamps. Were you talking about lamps? I wasn't. I didn't say anything about lamps. See? So you're reading it, and you're like, huh, superfluous information, extra stuff. I don't, that didn't have to be there. I would have finished my Bible in a year had they not stuffed it with so many irrelevant notes. No, that's not what we're supposed to think. We're supposed to go, hmm, is it really just about a lamp was still on? Is it really just that Eli couldn't see physically? Is it just where they physically chose to lie down? No. It's really interesting that almost every time we see Eli, he's sitting or lying or sleeping. He's uh, an unhealthy, overweight guy that doesn't get up for much in the text. He's idle. He's lazy. And it's not just that he's physically lying down or physically sitting down almost every time we see him. It's that he doesn't, he's not a man of action. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. We just saw that in chapter 2. And it's not just that his eyes are physically growing dim. He's not totally blind. But it's the fact that he doesn't love what his sons are doing. Remember in chapter 2? He's like, come on, guys. You shouldn't be doing this. He's just this wimpy, lazy guy. He doesn't love it, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's just lazy. He's not abjectly wicked. He just is idle and not doing what he's supposed to do. And so the text is like, interestingly, he was physically kind of almost blind. Wink, wink. That's what he's like. He's not totally blind, but he doesn't really see. And then it tells you, but there was something else that was flickering. While his eyes were growing dim, something else was still flickering, a hope. God hadn't totally left Israel That lamp represents God's presence, and it's still flickering, and there's some hope there. So while Eli's eyes are growing dim, something else is flickering, yearning for a greater brightness, and then you enter Samuel's story. And that's what the text is doing. The text is trying to get you to see this contrast between these two dudes. And one of them is a spiritually lazy, good-for-nothing priest. The other one's a boy in whom there's hope because he listens. doesn't say he's smart, he's acad- his academic prowess. He, the, the only virtue we're going to see in Samuel in this chapter is he listens. And so there's a way in which Samuel's eyes are more open than Eli's and not just Physically. So what we see in this story is that there's no hope with Eli, this idle guy. He's in darkness physically. You know, when you're growing blind, your, your darkness is increasing. 
And his only attempt at any kind of righteousness is, come on, guys, but there's nothing behind it. There's nothing back there. And then you contrast that with Samuel, who's sleeping in a different place. Eli sleeping in his own place. Samuel is sleeping in a place that is right next to the ark, which is God's very presence. Not superfluous information. Where they sleep, pictures, shows where they are spiritually. One of them is close to God, ready to hear from him. The other one is doing his own thing in his own lavish bed. That's the difference. And the reason why they live in dark times is because the people that are supposed to be receiving God's word and delivering it to the people are not doing it. They're taking advantage of the system. They're still doing the sacrifices, but the, 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 Eli's sons are taking the fat when they shouldn't be taking it. They're sleeping around with the women at the very tent. of. The, they're using the worshipful approach to the tent of meeting as an occasion to sleep around. They have commandeered God's system of sacrifice for their own self-pleasure. And we do that too. That's why many churches implode. Because the light goes out and God leaves. Well, as we continue to see in chapter 3, God is not willing to let the lamp go out. He's got something he's trying to do here and he's not going to let Eli's laziness get in the way. He's going to do something else with someone else, and that's Samuel. Not because of Samuel's virtue, but because God raised them up for this purpose. Let's check that out in verses 4 and following. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. There's a little twist. The Lord calls him, and he's like, Here I am, and you're like, Oh, this is going to be a conversation with God. No, he thinks it's Eli calling from... His place. Here I am and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, this is going to be what characterizes Samuel's life, but at this time, he, he didn't know any better. He hears an audible voice. What else can it be? He just assumes it's Eli. It's, again, visions were not a common thing. Hearing from the Lord was not a common thing. So verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. You, you notice how a lot of jokes, or at least they used to always have three phases. It's always three guys walk into a bar. Three ministers were in a boat. Three, and you always said, the first guy answered this. The second guy answered this. That's ancient. There's an ancient way of sort of building up the hype for the climax. And, and sometimes if somebody adds a fourth or a fifth, you're like, he, he get to the punchline because you, you know, the way, but if you give the punchline after the first one, the, the, the whole joke's not funny, right? Not that this is a joke, but you see this sort of building of anticipation kind of getting to that final climax. So the text just repeats it every time. The Lord calls Samuel again the third time. He rose and went to Eli, verse 8. And he said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived Wait a minute. (laughs) Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in, in his place. You see how Eli is not a total bad guy? He's not a total bad guy, but he's still a dud. 
You know, Eli's just like, oh, um, just say, Lord, speak to me, and then go ahead. And then he goes back to sleep. I'd be up like, so what'd he say? You know, like, don't you want to hear from the word of the Lord? He doesn't always speak. He knows the Lord is speaking. He goes back to sleep. All right. But he tells Samuel what to do. Speak for your servant hears, tell him that, and then he'll reveal himself to you. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, and here's his message. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel. And by thing, it ain't nothing positive. I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word tingle. And I was like, is that positive or negative? I don't understand. Until you see other passages in the Old Testament, when you hear ears are about to tingle, when God says ears are about to tingle, it's when he's announcing disaster. So tingle's not like, oh, it's like, bad news. Makes ears tingle. So I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is a story where Eli and his sons had their chance. And God warned. They, had, they knew what they needed to do. And he's announcing through Samuel to Eli that the door is shut. There's no coming back. You guys are done. You guys are done. We often think that we have until our moment of death to turn to Christ. No, you don't. No, you do not. You have until God is fed up with you and closes the door, and whether you're dead or not. If God closes the door, you're done, man. You don't have until your death. First of all, you don't know when your death is coming. You don't know when death is coming. But even before death, there's a sense in which God can have enough of our blaspheming him. I'm not saying everybody blasphemes him in the same way, but the more exposure you have to God's truth and the more you spurn it, the closer I think you get to blasphemy, taking advantage of the positive things of God. You know that the, dr- the breath you draw is from God. You know that the food you eat is from God. You know that your job really, God provided that. The talent that it took to secure that job, God gave you that. The, the skill and the, and the intellect that it took to get the grades, to get the degree to get that job, God gave you that, and you don't use any of it for him. You use all of it for your own selfish purposes. That is a dangerous place to be. It is a place of darkness, and you could get to a place where there's no coming back. No, no one's in control of that except the Lord himself. But does he not reserve the right to say, no more chances? No more chances. On your dying deathbed, he could send someone with the right word at the right time and you turn in that moment. I think he arranged for that thief on the cross to die right next to Jesus Christ. God arranged that. But there's no guarantee that in your final moment, you'll get the right word at the right time for a final confession. If you don't love the Lord now, 
you're not going to love them later, necessarily. Unless the Lord prompts it. But if we keep testing God, he might not prompt it anymore. That's a danger. And I think we're seeing that in this text. God reserves the right to not give Eli a chance. He doesn't kill him right away. He's going to live out the rest of his life knowing, door shut, man. That's scary stuff. It shouldn't have to be scary. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be scary. But for someone who's just in rebellion against the Lord, like Eli and his sons going through the motions, yeah, yeah, sacrifice, yeah, yeah, communion, yeah, yeah, church, in and out, whatever, but it doesn't change your life, that's a dangerous place to be. And so God is basically telling Samuel, hey, I'm giving you a word. I don't even want to talk to dude. I don't even want to talk to him. I'm telling you, the boy, and you're going to go tell him. Well, the boy wakes up for breakfast, and he doesn't want to tell him. Would you? Joseph would have. Joseph would have been like, I had a dream. Sit down, sucker. But Samuel, he doesn't want to tell Eli. Well, you see that in the opening verses uh, in the next section. Samuel lay until morning. I got to think he didn't sleep, but I don't, I don't know. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. There's another beautiful piece of imagery. Who cares that he opened the doors? Well, through Samuel, God is opening the house again. He's doing something through Samuel so that Israel has access to the house again. It's beautiful. But look at the next line. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Now, if you go back and read that vision God made it pretty clear. I'm declaring this to Eli, Samuel. That's what prophets do. I give it to you, you deliver the message. And Samuel's like failing his first test, his first task. He's afraid to tell the vision to Eli, verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. He could probably see he's reluctant. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. So may you be cursed if you don't fess up right now. What did he say? So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Again, Eli is like this half, half. A totally evil person would have been like, how dare you kill the little boy we've seen it (laughs) we're gonna see it later david gets spears thrown at him no one loves seeing the rise of their replacement unless they're given a a gift of god of grace and humility well when eli sees he doesn't want to choke him he doesn't want to kill him but he also doesn't want to repent wouldn't this be your time oh lord tear your garments get the ashes out Lord, please, may it not be so. Would you relent? Please kill me, not my sons. Something. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it's God's prerogative. Goes back down and opens a bag of Doritos. Like, huh? He kind of cares, but he doesn't care enough. And that puts him in a dark place. It's a spiritual laziness. Let him do what seems good to him. Hey, it's the Lord. Hey, yeah. whatever. Whatevs. Verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. You see, the importance of Samuel's role is to carry God's words, and all of them come true. God doesn't waste words, even when he mentions a flickering lamp or eyes going blind. Words are not wasted in Scripture, because that's how God speaks. Words don't get wasted. 
And God's intention is not for some of them to come true and others of them. Oh yeah, I forgot I said that. None of these words fall to the ground, meaning they're not wasted. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's cheat into chapter 4 by just one sentence. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So here you have a beginning and an end to this section. It begins with darkness, and God rarely speaks. And then it ends with a prophet where God speaks frequently, clearly, and all of it comes true. There is no prophet in the beginning of chapter 3. You just have a failed priest. And then what God does is he raises up a priest who also becomes a prophet in the person of Samuel. So what we're seeing in this passage is these two aspects that were a problem. One was the priesthood and the other one was uh, the role of prophet. Why does that matter? Here's why. Because the role of priesthood was how you have access to God and the role of prophet is what you learn from God once you have that access. I mean, that's, that's just normal. If a child has access to daddy's office, you can knock. You have the privilege to knock. You can interrupt him if you have to because you're a child. You're not some random neighborhood kid. You can knock on that door. But what's the point of knocking and having that door open if you're not going to get anything? He's just in there to just kick books around and pester him while he's on a call. No, you're asking for something probably, right? The priesthood is knocking on the door and getting access to dad's office. And prophecy is when dad is like, all right, here's what I have to say. Here's how much money I'll give you. Or no, not giving you anything. You don't need that. Or sure, I'll drive you at three o'clock. Just let me wrap up this meeting. You're getting some word from your dad. Priesthood is the access. Prophecy is the word that you're supposed to get. What's the point of the access if you're not going to get any word from him, right? And what you're seeing in Israel is they were running the access. Okay, guys, bring your sacrifice. I'm stealing the fat. Okay, ladies. Oh, especially those ladies. Y'all form a different line over here because we're going to have our way with you. At the tent of meeting. So they were running the machinery of the priesthood. But God is this. No word. So it's like they're going through the act of knocking. But dad's not saying anything. Is dad even in there? Who knows? Who cares? We're just going through the knocking. We're just going through the process. And while we're doing that, we're going to take advantage of all of you guys forming a line to dad's office. And what you got? What you got? Empty your pockets. Does ministry become that? Yeah, sadly, yes. Oftentimes. Oftentimes. The super gifted speaker... The, the tons of resources, you walk in and you're like, whoa, this place, whoa. Now, not, not all of them have gone wayward, but a lot of them do. That, that's why I think it's, and I'm not just saying this to plug the banquet today. I mean, if you don't show up, there's more food for me, but, you know, I, but 50 years, 50 years of God's faithfulness is not something you don't celebrate. And it's not 50 years of effective pastors, 50 years of such wise elders, right? 50 years of the perfect combination of members. It's 50 years of yielding to God and having him have his way. I mean, it's not hard. It's not a, a, a hard formula. 
it's just impossible to listen to without God's grace. Because like Eli's eyes and like Israel's ears, we're blind and deaf to God's word. So even if we're granted access, we don't take advantage of it the way we should because we're comfortable with religiosity, the knocking, the approach, the sacrificial system. We're comfortable with getting up and grabbing bread and a cup out of a tray. We grew up with it. We know we're supposed to do it. But when we go home and we don't act differently because of it, that was knocking and not receiving a word. And that's, that's a dark place to be. It's as dark, can I, might I say darker, than your coworker doesn't go to church. Doesn't go to church. I don't want that. It's almost darker to be like, yeah, I go to church and I do the sacrificial stuff, but I kind of, I, I do my own thing. That's, that's not a good place because God has a higher bar, I think, of accountability for people who should know better. That, that's all over scripture. Why do you think Jesus railed against the Pharisees? There's abject sinners lying around, but the Pharisees are the ones that should know better. They have the truth, but they don't have the truth. It's ironic. For churches, ministries, to be Christian, at least outwardly, at least in, on their website. But then in reality, they're not really yielding to God's word. It's a scary place to be. And I think ministries can shut down all over the place because of that. And there's a lack of blessing when we're like that. Because we can take it to the family as well. Parents, moms, dads, You are priests in your household. Do you just bring them to church for the knocking? Or do you bring the word to bear on your kids? There's a difference there. Raising them up Christian or shepherding them. It's a big difference. Eli trained his sons just enough to know how to lead worship. Eli trained his sons just enough to know how to do a service right? Put on a service. But when he saw them straying, the best he could muster up was, come on, guys. All come on, guys, is not good parenting. It's not enough to just be like, I don't love what they're doing, but like, what do you, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Ruffle the feathers, man. Ruffle the feathers. You have to. Eli is condemned, not for what his sons are doing. Be clear in the text. Verse 12, verse 13, really. I declare him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He's not blaming Eli for what his sons did. He's blaming Eli for not doing anything about what his sons did. Do you see the difference? You're not guilty for what your kids do. And a pastor's not guilty. Elders aren't guilty for what members do but we will be held accountable for what we say about it, for letting consequences be known. Church, you don't want a wimpy pastor. I've reflected on the the last 16 years. I've thought, man, I think sometimes maybe I probably shouldn't have said that. Sometimes from up here, I'm like, oh man, I, I hope that recording, especially back in the days when it was tapes, I'm glad those tapes aren't around. Some of y'all probably stash them secretly. Pull it out when you need to. I shouldn't be giving suggestions, but 
And maybe you felt like that as a parent. I felt like that too. Ah, that was, that was too harsh. That was too harsh. And I want to be careful how I say this so you don't take it the wrong way. But if I had to choose between a person, a, pa- a, a pastor, a dad, a mom, who sometimes laid it on a little too thick. Because that was a little, you could have been a little more patient there. You could have been a little more gracious. Between that and an Eli, I'll take that guy. I'll take that guy. As parents, you're going to make mistakes, but it's better for you to make a mistake on being too clear, maybe sometimes too firm, than on the lack of a backbone type of parent that just lets kids run amok. You can't control them. But what you can control is what you say about what they're doing and whether you have consequences that you can make clear to them about what they're doing. That's what good parents do because of the priesthood and the prophecy. Here's what God says, son. Here's what God clearly says, daughter. And it will not go well with you. He did it to get it out of Samuel. May the Lord curse you if you don't give me that right now. Why can't you talk to your sons like that, you jerk? Right? You can push little boy Samuel around. His parents aren't here, and he doesn't know any better. And he's a fearful little kid who doesn't want to tell you his vision. But your sons are still wiping the fat of the sacrifice off their chin, still buckling up their pants from what they just did, and they sit down, and you say nothing. You're a wimp. Well, what do we need? Do we need to go to man camp and throw some axes and like, let's just become dads? No, you need to be a man of God's word. You need to open God's word and say, Lord, what do you say? And what you say, I want to do. And I want my household to match what you say. And it's not to be a a demanding, despotic leader in the house or in the church. And there's ways to protect that. We need to parent our kids in community with other parents, to check us when we are being too harsh, to check us when we're being too flimsy, right? Instead of just doing it on our own. And we could be embarrassed. Oh, my kid is struggling with this. You think everyone else around the table is like, not my kids. Never heard of that. Never heard of that. Won't clean their room. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Found something they're smoking in their bag. I don't know. I got to talk to Pastor Lucas. Maybe you shouldn't be a member. Join the club. We struggle with the same things. Our kids are tempted by the same things. And if we don't invite each other into it, we can fall off the cliff one side or the other, too strict, and hopefully not this cliff of too flimsy. And as a pastor of this church, I hope and pray that you continue to pour into the elders that surround me, that they're not yes men. And how many of you think that whatever I say, the elders are just like, okay, Lucas, just come out to lunch with us one time and hear how we talk. It's not like that, (laughs) man. It's not like that. Well, that's some ways to apply this passage, but if we just leave it there, I think we do a great disservice to this passage, and I want to kind of close this with a more important connection. This passage makes it really clear that what Israel needed in their time of deafness and in their time of blindness, what they needed was ears that are unstopped to hear the word of God, eyes that are open to see what God says and reveals. And in order for that to happen, they need both the priesthood and the role of prophet to be active. And he fulfills it both of those roles in the person of Samuel. We saw that, right? So he he is not only a priest that was announced in chapter 2, 
Chapter 3 ends by saying everybody knew this guy was a prophet. So Samuel was priest and prophet who was miraculously born. If God didn't do a miracle and open Hannah's womb, we wouldn't have a Samuel. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) That God later at some time would open up Mary's womb and miraculously conceive a child and the response is a song from Mary that's very similar to Hannah's song. And Jesus comes on the scene as the weird of, word of God. He pierces darkness by being the word of God. He is God's revelation. He speaks it clearly to us and grants us perfect access like we talked about a few minutes ago so that we can knock and receive, right? Priesthood and prophecy. And both have to go together and they can't come together in any other way except through Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Samuel's dead. Sammy died. And spoiler alert, remember when Saul brings him back from the dead? Weird passage. Can't wait to get there. Samuel's like, are you? I'm resting, man. My time is done. Leave me alone. (laughs) Samuel knows he's not in this role forever. But there is one that God establishes in that role forever. And that is Jesus Christ. And the only way to have access to the Father and receive from him what you need to receive from him is through Jesus Christ. In a practical way, he raised up his apostles, they wrote scripture down, and we have way more access to scripture than Israel did in this time. And so we don't need to lie down and hope for a vision, hope for a dream. God speaks clearly through Jesus Christ's apostles. He trained them, promised that the Spirit would give them what they need, write that stuff down, wrote it down, and throughout all these centuries, it's been preserved for us to have a clear word. You want to wake up in the middle of the night and get a word from God? You click on the lamp on your nightstand, put your readers on, and grab the Bible. You want it in the morning over breakfast? Pull up your chair, cup of coffee, open the Bible, and let God speak to you in the morning. This is God's revealed word. And this is how we have access to what he says. So if we've taken advantage of the priesthood, that is, we've allowed Jesus to get us in connection with the Father, we've been adopted into this family, and we have access to the Father, then we take advantage of that access by opening his word and saying, God, teach me. Not in an academic way. We could get academic knowledge from the Bible outside of access to God. But when you're changed, your eyes change. And your ears change. And you're not blind like Eli. And you're not deaf like Israel. You have ears to hear. You have eyes to see. So now when you open up God's word, you're getting from it what you need. And you're changed by it. And you're conformed to Christ by it. That's the point. So when you read this passage, you know you're not supposed to be like Eli. You know you can't really fulfill Samuel. But Christ fulfills Samuel so that you cannot be like Eli. Does that make sense? He rescues us from our spiritual laziness and the darkness that ensues with just kind of doing religion without actually accessing priesthood and prophecy that we get through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be emboldened by this word and that we wouldn't just go home and try to do better on our own, but that we would access the throne room of God asking for mercy in this time of need, that you would do a, uh, a work in us, Lord, to make us more like Christ, make us zealous for what you say, 
and that we would have the kind of hearts that we need to yield to it, to live it out. Father, we thank you for all these years of faithfulness to this church, that as you speak, we listen, we do, um, and that we've um, together in community, Lord, tried to uh, gather around your word for what you say without smoothing it over, without accommodating it to cultural trends and allowing you to speak clearly and asking you and leaning on you for the grace that it takes to live it out. As we close in the song of worship, we pray that you would rivet it in us, this commitment to uh, the lived out gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.